we as humans being connected with the land, it's not just kind of a novel thing. It's not even that it's like a popular cultural movement, something really deep, something spiritual, something really ancient. And the more that we are divorced from the land, the more we become unhealthy. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Mom. How are you doing? Hi. Very good. So you had been telling me that you wanted to revisit the fish story from last week because it was kind of related to the story that I was telling in last week's intro to the episode, but we had forgotten a few details. So did you want to revisit that? Yeah, because I feel like I left people hanging. Yeah, well, let's finish that out. So there's many versions of this story. It was called either The Fisherman's Wife or The Fisherman and the Magic Fish or The Magic Fish or The Fisherman and Three Wishes. There were all different sorts of names for it. But basically, the story was there was this fisherman and his wife and they lived in this little house by the sea and he went fishing every day Mm -hmm. and one day he went out there and he caught a really big fish and he pulled it out and the fish could talk the fish said please let me go if you let me go I'll give you three wishes and the fisherman was such a kind man and he was very satisfied with his life and he didn't feel like he needed any wishes so he just let the fish go and so the fish swam off happily. And so he went, when he went back home, he told his wife about this. And oh, she got very right. angry. And she said, you should have asked him to give us a bigger house. Go back right now and go talk to that fish and tell him to give us a bigger house. And so he said, oh, okay. So he went back and he called the fish back and he explained. And so the fish said, okay, go home. So he went home. And sure enough, there was a nice big house there. And the wife was like really happy for about a day. And then the next day she said, I know there's another wish. Go back and tell him I want to live in a castle. And he goes, oh, I don't really want to do that. And she said, well, I I insist. So he went back. He called the fish back. Fish came up. He explained. And so the fish said, okay, go home. And so he went home. And sure enough, his wife was standing there in a castle. And there was all these beautiful things around. And so she was very happy until the next day. And she said, you know what? I want to be queen. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh no, because you know, you have your castle and we have so much. Why do you need to be queen? But she insisted. So he went back to the sea. And by this time there was, the sea was roiling and there was a storm coming up and there was dark clouds. And so he called to the fish. The fish came back and he said, my wife wants to be queen now. And the fish said, okay. And so go home. So he went home and sure enough, his wife was sitting on a throne. So he thought that was going to be it. No more problems. But of course, the next day, the wife says, husband, 
Now I want to be able to rule the sun and the moon. I want to be able to tell the moon, sun, when to come up and when to go down. And you must go tell the fish that that's what I want. And he said, wife, no, you have everything. I can't do that. And the fish only gave me three wishes. And she said, go back and tell him. That's what we want. So he went back. And by this time, the sea was raging. There was a storm. There were huge waves. Wind, rain, and the fish came up. And he said, yes, now she wants to rule the sun and the moon. And so the fish listened to him. And he said, okay, go home. And the fisherman went home. And the wife was standing there in their little tiny hovel that they had had originally. And that's the end of the story. So that was it. And might I add, there are many versions of that story. So did she rule the sun and the moon? Or No, that was the point at which yeah. everything was taken away. Because she just got greedy. Some versions of it, like after she's queen, then she wants to be pope. Interesting. And then after pope, she wants to be God. She just keeps asking. Yeah, but you're right. You made the point last week, too, that it's interesting that it's like this greedy woman. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, it did, did kind of bother me slightly. Yeah. And like the needy wife, like... Yeah. Or she's just sitting at home, like, wanting things. Very benevolent but spineless husband, you know. Yeah. He should have said, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think I could be wrong about this. Originally, a Grimm's fairy tale. Mm. And those are kind of, can be kind of dark. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and fairy tales are interesting. They really go into psychology and myth. Yeah. Archetypes. Stereotypes. Definitely. Fascinating stuff. Anyway, I just wanted to come full circle on that in case anybody was wondering. Yeah, it's (laughs) funny when you remember something about 60% of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's exactly what came to mind when you showed me the picture of that huge catfish last week down at the river. Wow. Yeah. So what's up with you? Well, this week we've got lots of fun things. Julia Watkins's gardening book came out, which if you haven't listened to last week's episode, that's what that was all about. And the Our Wild Farming Life book was also officially published this week. So that's two exciting new books. And you can purchase the Wild Farming Life book in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. If you haven't listened to that episode with the author Lynn Cassells is another wonderful treat. That is episode 77 from just a few weeks ago. Definitely give that one a listen. Lynn is so fun and their story is so interesting. No matter whether if you are a farmer, have nothing to do with farming, like you'll enjoy it and get something out of it. It's such a great book. And if you purchase the book from the marketplace, you get a free ticket to our author meet and greet event that we'll be having in April. More details forthcoming so we can hang all hang out with Lynn again be really fun. Oh, that'll be fun. I'm really looking forward to that. We just want to thank you guys all too for being good dirt listeners and supporters of this podcast. We continue to be growing every week, more and more downloads. It's super exciting and we just can't thank you enough. And we encourage you to continue to share the love, share this with a friend if you're enjoying this show, if you enjoy this particular episode. And every little bit counts towards growing the show so that we can bring you more good dirt. Yeah, you know, in February, for the first time, we surpassed 10,000 downloads for the yeah, month. That was super exciting. Yeah, and there's podcasts out there that maybe do that in an hour, but... <laughs> 
for us, that was a real milestone. Yeah, and we're getting very close to 100,000 total downloads as well. That's so exciting. And you know, what's the point of growing? The point of growing is the more listeners we have, the more we're able to do it. And the more our connections expand, the more our community expands, the more we can spread the word of the good dirt and sustainable living and regenerative agriculture and slow living and all those fun things we talk about every week and also to financially support the production of the program. So yes. yes. So thank you for helping us continue to grow and to support the program as we grow. And speaking of community, it really reminds me of this episode. Yes. Which is a really wonderful look at a really special type of community. I think you found Jason Mom. So do you wanna start out by introducing this podcast? Yes. So our guest today is Jason Fowler. He is the co founder and organizer of Land and Table, which is an organization that has been hosting monthly potlucks for the local food movement for almost 10 years in the Lynchburg and Bedford, Virginia area. And this was started as a way of creating a welcoming space for the community members, building the community through shared meals, skill sharing, networking, and just being together. Farmers are busy people, often isolated people. And so this was a platform for everybody to get together and just and gather. Land and Table exists to connect, educate, and inspire the next generation of new agrarians. The young farmers, the local food lovers, and they have plans to expand and carry the message of this new agrarian revival to the wider community and the whole world. Yeah, it, this was a great episode. I learned a lot from him and was really inspired. Made me want to host a potluck. I know. It made me think about potlucks. Like, I guess potlucks are kind of universal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope everybody out there knows what a potluck is. So a potluck, of course, is a gathering where everyone brings something, where everyone has something to offer in the way of the food. And so the responsibility is not on any one person or host, but it's actually a way of the community sort of supporting itself. It also reminds me of another story, the stone soup story. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, maybe I'll tell that next week. Oh, yeah, you have to stay (laughs) tuned. Yeah, (laughs) probably most people out there know it, but we'll tell that one next time. Yeah, and it's obviously been a weird time for potlucks. Yeah. Probably haven't done them very recently, but maybe we can start having them again. Yeah. I've always loved potlucks. I don't think I've ever been to a potluck that I didn't have great food and great fun. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a sweet thought. (laughs) Well... Jason now lives with his wife and seven kids near the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia, and he is continuing in this effort to make potlucks alive and happening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here is Jason Fowler. I'm Jason Fowler, one of the co-founders of Land and Table. I'm kind of a man of many hats. And so I've been organizing potlucks for Land and Table for around 10 years. We've been hosting monthly potlucks. And so I'm kind of the organizer behind that. We also started releasing some t-shirts and, and things like that. I don't know if you got a chance to look at that stuff, but the our merch shop is called New Agrarian Revival. 
And that's kind of the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish, which is really reviving a sense of local community among folks that are into local food, local farmers, homesteaders, all these people that often have a sense of not being connected or sort of living in the the mythology of Little House in the Prairie a little bit, which we are very inspired by, but also if you've read sort of the backstory behind what really went on with that family, there's a lot of loneliness, you know, moving around and we're seeking to curb the pioneer spirit with a sense of community. That's awesome. I really love that. That is so interesting that you should start off with that because we've been touching on that lately about how the homesteading movement in our American history did include a lot of isolation and where you had to do kind of everything yourself or you didn't survive. But in the more modern practice and experience of homesteading, it does seem to be more of a community thing. And that's that's really a, a positive thing because now the way we live and the way the, you know, with the scarcity of land and so forth, we can't all be isolated. And just because you want to grow your own food and live a little more self-sufficiently does not mean you have to live in the absence of other humans or human help or humans doing other things that you need to live. So yeah, that's been kind of a thread going through our conversation. So that's really interesting. So anyway, tell us what is Land and Table exactly? So my wife and I lived in Northern Virginia. I grew up in in Prince William County and we were living in Fauquier County. And we were looking to get away from kind of the frenetic energy of Northern Virginia. And um, we were looking to to find a place that that was outside the Northern Virginia area. We were looking to kind of live in community with my wife's parents and, and sister and, and husband. And we ended up sort of looking at the, the Lynchburg-Bedford area. And in the end, we ended up not living in community, but we all moved down to the same area. Around the same time, my wife Pam and I were sort of falling into thoughts about homesteading and eating local. And it soon became kind of a shift in our life that flipped us upside down. And long story short, we ended up, this is a really strange story in some ways. Sometimes I have to figure out like how many details to tell, but we moved to Lynchburg and we're in this new area. We're starting to fall into eating local and meeting different farmers. And we had an opportunity arise where an older couple who we we knew through some other folks invited us to live on their farm. And around that time, I started reading Wendell Berry. There's a lot of converging things that happened. So I, we were living on this farm that was a historic village called the Village of Curtis near the Blue Ridge Mountains. Very picturesque place. It had an old general store on the property. And so we lived in this cabin by Creek. And at the time we had three kids. Now we have seven. So we we were living in this cabin and I was commuting into city of Lynchburg for an economic development organization. And this organization was all about technology, but they were connected with some other organizations that were focused on, you know, different things like job development or different economic development things. And I said to my boss one day, I was like, hey, you know, why is there nothing about economic development for food and agriculture in our area? And he was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. A new farmer's market sort of popped up and we ended up connecting with those people. My boss went to this farmer's market and he said, look, let's put something together kind of about the economic impact of the local food movement. And so I put together a white paper and 
my boss took it to regional leaders. I took it to a few friends and we sat around my friend Ben Coleman's farm and we we said we had sort of two questions. One was, what do we want you know regional leaders to do for the local food movement? And then we asked, what are we going to do to grow and support the local food movement? And we decided that we were going to meet sort of repeatedly over these questions. And then we started saying, well, hey, we're talking about local food and, you know, some of us are farmers and why aren't we eating together? And so we started eating together. And and so more and more people started to join us at these monthly potlucks. And soon we just found ourselves covering all kinds of different topics and just this idea of building community and cultivating community. It became clear that what was needed was the intentional cultivating of community because you know, my wife and I would even meet different farmers who this one farmer we buy eggs from another we buy meat from and, you know, we'd be like, hey, do you know this other farmer? And then, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we know them. We haven't seen them in a long time. You know, farmers tend to be extremely busy. And like most of us, we, we have all the different things that we're juggling and farmers are even more so. And so there's kind of a, a cost to getting together with people, you know, whether it's you have to do your farm chores early or you have to get home not too late or these different kind of things. But we saw this need to connect farmers together. And then, you know, we really open up our monthly potlucks to anyone. And so we don't draw the line around farmers. We invite people who are just local food lovers or people who have a backyard garden or just all kinds of people interested in sustainable agriculture, just living close to the land, kind of the back to the land mentality. These are all things that we kind of coalesce around. That's amazing. I bet you know my friends, uh, Michael and Arden at Great Day Gardens. So yes, they are on our advisory board. And so, yeah, yeah, we have some great events over there. Every time we have it at their farm, they are great hosts. And of course, we several times have done pizza Yeah. They have a wood-fired oven over there, and they're doing great work. Yeah, they were one of our first podcast guests on The Good Dirt. Yeah, I think I remember that. They were a couple of the first farmers we talked to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's fun. I think that's where I first heard about you guys. Oh, cool. That's so funny. I wonder, too, I wonder if that's kind of how we ended up finding you, too. Is like through them. So this has been going on about 10 years ago, you guys started this? Yeah, that's right. It was just about 10 years in in November here. And so monthly potlucks for 10 years. Oh, wow. So I'm curious, when people come to the potluck, obviously they bring their contribution. Is there an understanding that this is something you grew or that you got locally? Or what's the assumption about the potluck, the food at the potluck? I'm just curious if there is any. What's really interesting is I can imagine maybe setting some rules. And, you know, I've loosely mentioned a number of times encouraging people to bring either something they make or they grow or things like that. But honestly, you don't really need to put a whole lot of parameters when you are inviting people around, you know, passion for sustainable agriculture and living close to the land. A lot of these folks are are, are farmers. It's sort of a given. It's It's like they just bring from who they are. And the secret about these potlucks is that they are the best potlucks in the entire state of Virginia. I mean, really, like, 
some of the food that is on the table would just really blow you away. Wow. I want to go. Me too. I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) You said you were living up here and it was, and again, you say it's rural. There was still a sense of just a lot going on and you really wanted to like simplify and slow things down. Would you say that was the extent of your sort of like aha moment? Like you were reading Wendell Berry and you had this living situation opportunity open up to you on a farm. Were there any more like specific aha light bulb moments that you can speak to about kind of a a change? And also, I don't know if you mentioned, but about when was that? How many years before Land and Table, I guess, did that start? Gosh, we moved around 2006 to the Lynchburg area. And I believe Land and Table started around November 2011. But even before we would even think that moving onto a farm was a good idea, because there was a time when that really wasn't kind of in our mindset or it wasn't kind of in our view of something that would even be a a good thing. But when we were newlyweds living in a basement apartment of of my in-law's house, and I remember the first time we started a garden and I had a tiller and I remember starting the tiller up and it just yanking me, you know, across the yard and, you know, kind of like being carried away by this tiller. And I think that was a really <laughs> sort of interesting moment where it was like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I feel like this is important. And it was even a, a borrowed tiller. And we started eating out of that garden. And I remember the first cucumber that I picked and there was dirt on the cucumber and it was like so bizarre to have this cucumber with dirt on it because I was just so used to buying cucumbers from the store and they're pristine, they're polished. And here's this piece of food that's in the dirt and there's dirt all over it. That was a real key thing. We also had a couple friends, two friends of ours were very instrumental. One worked at a health food store. And because of this one friend, our our friend Kaylee, we started really thinking a lot more about what we ate and about our health and the connection between food and health. We had another couple of friends, our friends, Jessica and Dean, and they were exploring alternative building and more simple living kind of stuff, homesteading. And we were just like, what are you guys talking about? This is crazy talk. Or like, we weren't quite sure like what it was all about. And the more we started internalizing some of the things that our friends were becoming passionate about, the more we stumbled farther along into that journey ourselves, just thinking about our food. And in thinking about our food and health, we eventually stumbled into local food, like I said. And so When we moved to the Lynchburg area, we started seeking out where do we get this food? You know, where can we buy local eggs? We met our friend, Ben Coleman, who's been very instrumental in our our life, Ben and Carly Coleman at Mountain Run Farm. We met Ben at a farmer's market right before he stopped going to the farmer's market. They continued to sell directly to their customers, but they stopped doing the farmer's market. And it was really my friendship with Ben And going to Ben with some of these questions that I was mentioning before with this white paper that I did for the organization I work for. And I guess when I think about it, the theme for me in a lot of my aha moments have been, these aha moments have really been influenced by friends. And I would say, you know, friends in books have pushed us into a whole series of aha moments that were very like serendipity moments where you're just like, what just happened? I, 
my mind just changed or like something blew up in my spirit or you know you just you feel this shift and you're like something has shifted and now new things are important and so when the opportunity to move onto a farm occurred we were already starting to go how do we find this different kind of life and like I said it was kind of a a convergence for us gosh I just love that and you articulate that so well I think that is probably a very familiar experience across a lot of people that are interested in these things and probably a lot of our podcast listeners of just this inner knowing like I love that moment of you with the tiller being like it was probably like a hot mess situation but you were like this is I'm on to something here I love your description of that almost visceral experience when you read a book that something really impacts you and really shifts something inside. And I feel like I've been having that a lot lately uh, with all these writings and articles and reading the books about, you know, climate change and the local food movement and how people are, are catching on to and starting to understand the importance of it. And we always love to talk about good reads on this show. So other than Wendell Berry, what are some of the other books that you feel like have really influenced you and, and have guided you from one point to another? Okay. So the art of the commonplace, I'll have to confess, is really the only Wendell Berry book that I've that I've read. And Wendell Berry, you know, I say, you know, Wendell Berry is the grandfather of the local food movement. His writings are the underlying philosophy of Land and Table. And so whenever I talk about Land and Table, I try to root what we're doing is it's because of people like Wendell Berry who have articulated and lived out this agrarian rootedness that we're trying to revive and cultivate. But a few other books, obviously, The Omnivore's Dilemma is one of the gateway drugs for people. It wasn't for me, but it's definitely, you know, one of the top. So one of them is called, this is by a friend of mine, Reagan Sutterfield. I've lost touch with him now, but it's called farming as a spiritual discipline cool and it's really interesting how he connects faith and spirituality with this idea of being connected to the land and for me that's one of the underlying things that motivate me and kind of the the ancient hebrew idea of the garden of eden which is is a very powerful metaphor just even in our pop culture like we we still retain that kind of ancient story one thing i love and it may have been reagan who talked about this but other folks like Fred Bonson, Norman Wiersba, they have a book called Making Peace with the Land. And probably all three of these authors have mentioned this, but basically when the creator created Adam in the Hebrew, his, you know, his name Adam, right? It's Adam who comes from Adama. So Adama is, is the soil, right? So I, so, so God forms Adam from the soil and then breathes into the soil. And so this idea of Adam coming from Adama is really this, one of these underlying things that that really stokes a lot of my underlying philosophy is we as humans being connected with the land. It's not just kind of a novel thing. It's not even that it's like a popular cultural movement, something really deep, something spiritual, something really ancient. And the more that we are divorced from the land, the more we become unhealthy. Mm. And so the connectedness with the soil is a really motivating force, you know, being connected with the land and then connecting people. And all this connectedness, like, like Wendell Berry talks about health as membership. 
And so a lot of times people talk about, oh, how do you, how do you be healthy? How do you eat healthy? And all this kind of thing. And it's like, as Wendell Berry says, we like to think of health as something within ourselves, but it's like, it's our connectedness with, with others that is is a part of what real health actually is. And like you just said, it's our connectedness with the soil. And that's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast too, but I've never thought about it like in this context, which is so interesting. I just love that so much. I guess you could call it ecological thinking. Yeah, it's like a system. Yeah, we're, we're in ecology is a web of relationships. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we were made yeah. to be in a web of relationships, mm-hmm. but we have sort of bought the lie that like, well, you can live your life not in that web of interdependence. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a lot. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a little scary because, you know, reality doesn't change. But we often try to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can change reality. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, when you go to the grocery store, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pulling these chips off the shelf or I'm grabbing this cucumber out of the produce section. And when I come back in a week, it's going to be there for me. And it's like, actually, you only have three days of the trucks, you know, running that give you that illusion that your food is coming from the shelf in the store. And it's actually coming from the land. Mm -hmm. And so when you lose that connectivity with the land, you sort of are living in this kind of illusion that you're no longer connected with the land and that you don't need to be. But the reality is you are. And in this book, Farming as a Spiritual Discipline, my friend Reagan talks about living by proxies and how, you know, when we're disconnected from the land, we live more and more by proxies. There's these things in between us that kind of separate us from the land. And I think that's true. It happens with people where we're we're separated from each other, you know, whether it's Netflix or social media, you know, we, we have all these proxies and it's just like... Mm-hmm. There's nothing that can kind of replace, you know, sitting down and eating with someone and being in their presence just in in real life. It's just, you can't replace that. I am really fascinated by all the metaphors, I guess, that emerge in all these discussions. You're talking about the interconnectedness of people and the necessity for that. And as uh, thinking about how soil science has changed so much, you know, recently, they're learning so much more and more about the interconnectedness that's in the soil. And as we learn that, and we learn about how the good dirt, what this whole show is about, what goes into it, and then how that is reflected into how how we live and how we interact with each other. For instance, all the science now that's coming out about how the trees communicate and the mycorrhizae beneath that's in the dirt and all those things. It's so exciting. And I think we can apply it directly to how we're living and how we're trying to shape our lives in this, what did you call it? A new agrarian revival. I think that was, the, the, mm-hmm. is that what the term that you use? Yeah. And these sort of revivals of agrarianism, there's been a number of them throughout human history. And some of them have had political connotations. You know, some of them have been in different cultures, different, you know, different times. But I feel like what's happening now with the local food movement 
and sort of the reemergence of the back to land movement, which, you know, in the U.S. kind of started in the, in the 60s. You know, the back to land movement emerged out of a time, you know, it, there was a lot of political activism. And then it was like, we're not going to save the world. We've got to save ourselves. And not necessarily in a, in a selfish way, but it was like there was a, a lot of people realized like, We've got to create alternatives to the systems that I like to think of them as ego systems instead of ecosystems. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and so when I talk about agrarianism, you know, it's this idea of, you know, humans were like we talked about, like it's an, it's an ancient connectivity, of, you know, humans with the land. And so agrarianism is trying to get back to a life that is rooted in the land, which is difficult now because, you know, we've paved over our land, we've put houses on the land. We don't even know how to get back to the land sometimes. You know, my wife and I and our seven kids, we lived on the farm that we lived on for 10 years. And we lived in kind of an unintentional community and we had to leave the farm. We kind of outgrew the cabin the cabin was kind of falling apart and getting moldy. And, you know, it was like a 1780s cabin. And we moved out since then, I guess it's been about three and a half years, we've been looking for our own farm. And the difficulty of that is uh, it, it can't be explained easily. I mean, it's it's such a, a journey to go from living on a farm. And then we ended up living in, in the town of Bedford, which for us was very urban, even though it's not urban the way that big cities are. It was the town and a whole different atmosphere. And we lived on a main road. And so all the traffic going to the highway was going past our street, people walking down the sidewalk, you know, blaring boom boxes in the middle of the night and screaming at each other, you know, occasional things like that. It was such a contrast to go from farm life we were milking a cow, we were collecting eggs, we were right by a, a babbling creek, you know, and then all of a sudden we're like, we're in the middle of no one has yards, barely. And we were just like, what is this life that humans are living? Mm -hmm. It's like we got converted to living as rural people. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of got pulled away from us. And now we're kind of on this journey to reclaiming that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, once that sort of conversion happens to you, at least for us, it feels very permanent, you know, where we're like, because we had the opportunity to buy the house that we were in. And it was like, you know, we, we came close to, gosh, we can afford this house. And, you know, it's sort of like in a good location. And the more we sort of contemplated that, the more we were like, oh my gosh, we would rather die than go back to a life of just, it was almost as if we couldn't comprehend. And we, and we still, this is still where we are. We can't comprehend a life where we have no animals. You know, there's no farm animals, no growing things. And so it's been hard. We actually live in a, in a cabin we jumped 200 years, which is nice. Now we live in a 1980s cabin and we're on 60 acres of, of pine trees that's owned by the company I work for. And I, I do marketing and e-commerce stuff and graphic design for a company that makes um, overlanding equipment and things. So when I go to work, I walk outside of the cabin and I walk down the hill to the shop. And so that's that's my commute, which we love. You know, we, we love... Uh, I can walk home for work and things like that, but it's not a farm. Mm. 
And even though like we have the forest, we have to get back to the farm. And I think that's a journey for a lot of people where it's not really clear how to get back to the land. The same way that it's not always clear how you even get back to other people, especially in the time of COVID, it's become increasingly difficult to even understand how to relate to other people Mm -hmm. and to be in the presence of other people. And I feel like all these things are kind of tied up together. And, And what we've been trying to do with Land and Table is cultivating real life community amidst this journey for a lot of people who are trying to make their way back to the land as well. You had this somewhat unique experience of experiencing the contrast between those lifestyles that I think, you know, some people have, but not a lot of people. You lived on a farm and then you lived in an urban setting and you recognize what you'd lost. So I think that's valuable and it's it's valuable to be able to reflect on that and communicate it to other people. You know, because people that might be living in a certain setting, they don't, you know, they feel like something's lacking, but they don't know what it is. And not everybody can't just pick up and move to the country. That's true. But I think sometimes if you become aware that just for example, like a person might experience a lot of anxiety and they might, they may or may not attribute it to where they live or their surroundings or, or what they encounter every day. And if they were able to do that, to bring that to consciousness, They might be able to make it a point to, on the weekends, get out to a park or something or go for a hike and sort of try to fill in those gaps where the environmental stressors are not so prevalent. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I think it's a unique perspective to be able to line up your experiences like that. I agree, mom. Those are some good points. And I also wanted to go back a little bit to the land and table efforts you talk about the challenges of bringing people, there's COVID and then there's, I mean, you've been doing this 10 years every month and I'm really interested in what are some of the challenges that you've had to overcome with Land and Table? I think one of the biggest challenges has been fighting the constant feeling of wanting to give up because a lot of times I think it's similar to farming or gardening where you, some seasons you're like, hey, things are going pretty good. And other seasons you're like, why am I doing this? This just doesn't make any sense. You know, if I didn't love this, you know, I I wouldn't ever do this. And I can't tell you how many times I've had this sense of like, is this worth doing? Is this helping anybody? You know, it's like, what, what is this work? Like, like having a sense of that the, the work is critical to do, but also feeling like, am I seeing any progress? Is, is this going anywhere? And I think that has been from season to season, something that has kind of ebbed and flowed. And I think, you know, when you're trying to connect people, some of the hard part has been realizing that the work is bigger than you. And it's like, there's almost too much work to do for you. And one of my biggest challenges has been knowing how to be a leader in a community where, you know, number one, it's like, I have no experience leading except as, you know, in my own family, maybe. So I'm not trained to do what I'm doing, but calling people to come together monthly is a really beautiful thing to see people value that, to see relationships build. And that's really what we've been trying to do is anything that you ferment, you know, we talk about culture, you know, it's like yogurt or kombucha or, you know what I mean? There's, you have to create the right environment and then you have to add the right 
catalyst. And so it's almost like that's what we've been trying to do. And some of the beautiful things that we've seen is farmers coming together to form buying clubs, a chef connecting with a farmer, you know, people becoming friends, people who are feeling isolated or suddenly have people to connect with. Even Michael and Arden, when they came to the area, it was really beautiful to see that they were able to all of a sudden come into this network of people that they were already there Mm -hmm. you know it was like we could we could welcome them into something that had been growing for a long time we have even seen a marriage come at you know people met at the potlucks and they ended up getting married you know and there's so many different layers of importance to, to the idea of the local food movement you know it's it's economic it's um, ecological, all these different things, but fundamentally it's, it's relational. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think we don't value relationship enough and we don't understand that out of relationship is where everything else springs out of, Yeah, you know, wh- whether it's business deals or economic growth or just whatever it is, you know, at the base is connection between people, it's friendship And out of that emerges all kinds of different things. Gosh, yes. Amazing. We do the Bedford Land and Table meetings the third Tuesday of every month. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have a hard time being able to come at that time in the evening. But on average, even over the years, it's been 20 to 30 adults pretty typically, which we appreciate that consistency. But And people have come and gone and different things, but it really is a community of communities and we'll get a big group of people coming from another county. And so for instance, we recently started another land and table group in Amherst County that meets on the third Saturdays at a different farm. And our vision really is to have more of hyper-local community. That's, Mm -hmm. That's really, I think, the antithesis to all the things that are unraveling local community, this sense of like globalization and technology is kind of fracturing, even economic trends, you know, have been fracturing local community for a long time. And so, you know, to us, the, the solution is, is hyper-local networks of, of people who are, you know, mutually supporting one another. I mean, this is the way that people farmed for forever, you know, is having these agrarian communities where you're helping bring in the harvest. And these things seem nostalgic to us now and almost like fairy tales, but it's really not a fairy tale, right? It's, it's, it's really what we were talking about with ecological thinking. It's like, that's, that's how we were, we were made to live. But Mm -hmm. if people want to replicate that, and this is some of I feel like is the work of land and table too, is to inspire other people to do what we're doing. And I would say, if you want to recreate what we're doing, what we're talking about is healing the fabric of local community. And the only way to do that is to create space for people to come together. And it has to be consistent. What we've found is that it takes a small group of people to do that. Often it's very difficult if you just have one person. You know, I myself would not consider, you know, when we started Land and Table, you know, we were not full-time farmers. We were just kind of dabbling in homesteading. And then our friends, Ben and Carly, they were full-time farmers. 
And so it was the collaboration between us that enabled Land and Table to grow. Mm-hmm. So I think it takes a small group of people to do monthly potlucks. I think it takes the right venues. You know, some farms are able to host a whole bunch of cars, 30 people, kids running around, and some farms can't. That's just the reality of things. I think, you know, with, with COVID, a lot of people are very sensitive about meeting indoors. And um, so you have to take into consideration that, especially in the winter months, we'll take off December and January a lot of times, but December is really busy anyway for a lot of people. So keeping the potlucks focused on local food, right? It's, it's like we're building community, but we've kind of narrowed our focus to the local food movement. And I honestly feel like that is so open that anyone could kind of come into that. But obviously, if you're not interested in regenerative agriculture and simple living and local food, you know, it may not appeal to you, but we get all kinds of people. And so it's a very open community. And I think the last thing that I would say is we actually do different kinds of potlucks. And so we'll have skill shares, we'll have forums, we'll have work parties, we'll have presentations, and then sometimes we'll just do socials. And so we have these different modes by which the community comes together. And I think having that sort of diverse kinds of meetings allows for different things to happen. Yeah, I think that's great. And I would also say having those diverse kinds of meetings allows room for people of all kinds. Like, you know, I think maybe potlucks, just purely social potlucks could be like really hard for some people that might be particularly introverted or but say do a Skillshare or a forum and that's like an invitation for you no know, I have something I can bring I have you know something I can watch being sort of community facilitators ourselves that's something we've learned to make space for everyone and a lot of times that means having some offering something for people to participate with or bring to have a job almost yeah absolutely absolutely so Jason can you speak to the evolution of this local food movement and how you've seen it change since you've been involved in it? I wish that I could say that I have seen the local food movement in our area dramatically grow or that we could say like, hey, because we've done certain things, we can point to the changes that have been made. But I think, you know, the rising awareness of the importance of local food, I don't know that we can claim that we did that because I feel like that is just something that is emerging in the culture overall. But I think, you know, we can point to the different relationships that have emerged, you know, even you know, farmers collaborating on the same land, we've helped facilitate those kinds of things. It's kind of the relational growth that ebbs and flows, I think. And so when I think about the changes that have occurred in the local food movement, I don't know that I can give definitive sort of statements about what has grown or what has changed. Again, it's like a seasonal thing almost where in this garden of community, you see things come, you see things go, and you sort of have to start over each season. And so I feel like that's been a a, a real clear thing for me and, and why it's sometimes frustrating to kind of understand how to quantify the value of what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's that way with a lot of great projects. <laughs> it just kind of reminds me of something you said earlier that I was like, well, I've never heard anything more relatable was when you said that one of the challenges was not giving up <laughs> because sometimes you're like, why are we doing this? And like farmers and like sometimes it's a really rainy season and, you know, all of your 
crop gets washed out or moldy or something. And yeah, that's so like life. That's amazing. It's totally life. And we miss that, right? Mm -hmm. When we're disconnected from the land, we think that we can control life the same way we turn on Netflix and then we can pause it and we can rewind it Uh and we can, you know what I mean? It's like, that's not life. Life is so much more beyond our control. You know, so we don't have our finger on the button to make things go or not you know Mm -hmm. so jason what does the good dirt mean to you i love that question and i was really thinking a lot about what my answer would be i guess two things you know one i think about the parable of the good soil if you've ever heard of that obviously we all have different challenges in life but it's like some soil produced a little bit some soil produced nothing It's like the seed went on the soil and different things happened. Sometimes it got swallowed up by thorns. Sometimes it got stolen, but it was like some of the soil produced tenfold, 30, 30-fold, 60-fold. And so I think the idea of good dirt is this idea of like, what are you going to do with the seeds that you have, right? Everyone has some good seeds that have been cast your way. And obviously we also all have the challenges that can counteract the life of those seeds. I think the other thing I would say about what is good dirt is good dirt really is community. Like what we were talking about earlier, the microbial community, you know, it's becoming more clear with science that you can't create fake fertility. You can't just leverage technology to make plants grow better. Eventually you find the limits to those means. And in reality, It's because you're not understanding what is happening in that soil, that the soil is a community of communities. And when you understand that it is a community of communities, the idea of good dirt or good soil really is our ability to cultivate that sort of invisible world. And we have a shirt that we released and it says, join the underground and it's a carrot. And I think that's what the goal is, right? The goal is to cultivate something that is underground something that is living and thriving. And we may not understand it, but that thing that is almost unseen is what is giving us life. And sometimes we forget because it's like, you know, you count how many friends do you have or acquaintances or like you you can't really quantify sometimes that all the things that are unseen that are supporting you and and causing you to thrive. And we want to make that good dirt more possible where that sort of relational microbial, if that's a metaphor, you know, it's like we, we want to proliferate and cause the right conditions for all those invisible things in the soil to proliferate. And that leads to health, right? Mm, Gosh. You're so eloquent. That's wonderful. I love that point you made that we can't create fertility and sooner or later, we're going to hit the limits of that. Like we're going to hit, you're going to hit the wall on just those external inputs, both metaphorically and literally. You have to let things develop underground. Yeah. It's very rich, very rich and nuanced topic. Thank you very much for expressing it that way. But yeah. And while you mentioned your new, your shirt, your design. Feel free to chat a little bit about that. What is it? New agrarian revival, like the merch situation. So tell us a little bit about that and any other like projects or things you're working on that you want listeners to know about or where they can find you and find this wonderful merch. 
Yeah, if you go to landandtable.com, there's a link to New Agrarian Revival. Yeah, I do all this kind of in my spare time. Mm -hmm. I wish that I could do it full time and I just can't yet. So what's funny is I wear lots of layers. So this is called uh, Saint Sparrow. And this is one of our releases. Uh, Another one is... um, So for those Um, listening, the first one is a really beautiful sketching of a sparrow and it looks like some kind of flower or some plant. And then the second one's a rooster. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Yeah, rooster. And it says cultivate local food, land, community. And then the, but this one, you know, join the underground. It's a carrot. And I love that one. I'm, I'm an artist. I'm a graphic designer. Oh, you do all these. Wow. They're so beautiful. They're so cool. But if you go to landtable.com, you can click on New Agrarian Revival and see some of our past releases. Currently, we're not printing our own shirts. We use a company out of Richmond called Bonfire, and they allow you to do campaigns where you can kind of do print on demand. And eventually, you know, we want to get to the point where, you know, we can be printing our own shirts and things like that. But t-shirts are really kind of like in the cultural bloodstream, you know, in pop culture. And so if you want to capture people with ideas, it's like put it on a shirt mm-hmm. you know it's like that's you know we kind of wear our hearts on our sleeves and so my hope is that new agrarian revival can be kind of the street wear of the local food movement you know what I mean like mm-hmm. there's I don't know it's like really popular yeah. to be like ah street wear you know and it's like yeah. like we're styling in the street wear and it's like <laughs> who cares I mean you know, these brands just, what are they saying to the culture? Mm-hmm. And it's like, what does the local food movement have to say? What is, what is the wisdom that we have to give? And it's like, that's why we need to slap that message on our shirts because it's a cultural artifact. You know, when, when you're walking around with your shirt and it's on Instagram and you know what I mean? It's like, it could seem shallow, but at the same time, it's also part of the language of our culture. And, and we want to kind of put forth the ecological wisdom and the wisdom of the back to land movement, the local food movement, and just kind of speak that in artistic ways. Yeah. Well, the art is beautiful. You said I'm a graphic designer. Is that like your full-time gig? Yep. Basically, you know, my, my day job, I work for a company called Blue Ridge Overland Gear. And, you know, I do that 40 hours a week. And then I have freelance clients that I do stuff for. And then I'm doing laying the table. And then we're trying to start this nonprofit called Terra Numa. I was going to add, is Land and Table a nonprofit? How do you describe it as an organization? Or is it just this loose thing with the potlucks? Yeah, for years, Land and Table had no sort of legal entity to it. But a couple of years ago, we turned it into an LLC. And so... You know, our our vision is to create a regional food guide. That's one of the things that we want to do. And to create other resources. You know, we've been talking about creating an online forum for people to to connect. And, and so leveraging, you know, online resources to kind of connect people looking to buy local food to people who are selling it. There's a lot of different possibilities that if we could fund it, then we could sort of make some headway with those things. But I have considered for a long time land and table to be a very nonprofit thing. But forming a nonprofit is just, it's a lot of work to kind of wrap around what you're doing. And we're just not quite there yet. But I I definitely imagine what we're doing to be- Mission-driven. It's mission-driven. It's social impact. Mm -hmm. And so I've done a lot of thinking too about this idea of like, does 
does the world need another nonprofit? Mm -hmm. I think the idea of social impact entrepreneurship is really interesting to me. And I think there are hybrids that are emerging, you know, B Corps and different things. It's interesting to see how the mission drivenness and the social impact stuff is increasingly being taken up by business. And so I've been inspired by that a little bit, but I definitely imagine that if we don't sort of become a nonprofit, we'll probably at least have some kind of foundation in the future. Cool. Well, I'm excited to watch what happens. Maybe you come to a potluck sometime. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be so fun. So Jason, in closing, what would you like to leave our audience with about yourself and what you do? Is there just anything else you'd like to add or talk about today? I would just emphasize that there is real power in potlucks to build local community and the importance of building local community in a time when so many different trends are continuing to fracture real relationships between people. The importance of potlucks for every community and especially for farmers, young farmers, people who are into homesteading. I mean, it's important for everybody, but especially people who are pioneering, kind of going back to the land. We like to imagine that we can be lone rangers. And I would just encourage everyone to consider that one of the most important things that you can do in your life right now is to organize and to build local community. It's critical work. And I think that there's real exponential change that can happen for potlucks to change the landscape of the whole country, if you think about it. I mean, I, I think about it in terms of, of our country, but it, it's something that just eating with other people on a regular basis, do that because there's something powerful that can happen. God, I just love that so much. The power in the potluck. That's so exciting. and. Yeah. And so fun. So and, and there's just something so beautifully like wholesome about a potluck that it's and people eating together that the idea of the potluck is that we all we share the burden. But really, it's a yeah. joy to feed one another. So we share the joy. It's so cool. So thank you for that. I'm inspired. <laughs> I would say one last thing, which is potlucks are what we do, but it's also the model for community. Like, like what you're saying is potlucks. It's the model for community, right? It's the opposite of a restaurant. You know, a restaurant, you kind of go as a consumer and you have nothing to bring, right? And then you're being served. The time now is to like reclaim the model for community, which is we all have something to bring. That's awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> so great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. This was so incredible. I cannot wait to share this with our listeners. And I feel so, like I said, inspired and almost like fired up. I'm like, I'm about to like email my whole block and be like, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. This is this is great. I'm a great believer in potlucks. I was before and now now it, I have this information about it. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>